On Thinking Biblically this week, we're going to be focusing on the festival of Esther called Purim and look at how the power of irony helps us to not only connect with life, but enables us to celebrate. We're going to be starting with a visit from a special guest. Purim, everyone! It's me, Mordecai! I'm back again. I was here last year to tell the story, and I'm here again to help introduce this special Purim edition of my friend Alan Gilman's Thinking Biblically podcast. He tells me that Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to exploring how all of Scripture speaks to all of life, and what my cousin Esther and I went through all these years ago was certainly a case where she learned to think biblically, and I hope you get to do that as well. Well, this is being recorded on your calendar on the Wednesday, March the 8th, 2023. But in my calendar, the Jewish calendar, it's actually the 15th of Adar, the year... 5783. And uh, the 15th of Adar is, is an extra special day of Purim for people who live in walled cities. So if you live in Quebec City or Jerusalem or any other walled city in the world, you get to spend this extra day to celebrate Purim. Now, Purim, which was actually yesterday compared to when I'm recording this, Alan tells me he doesn't know exactly when it's going to be posted, but he hopes it's going to be on this exact same day. So we get it out at least on Shushan Borum, uh, having missed regular Borum yesterday. Anyway, we'll see how that goes. You're going to know that because you're watching it now. Something like that. Okay. Anyway, I'm here to help introduce my friend Alan speaking on this subject of Borum that he, he gave at a church in Alberta. You might know that he was away for a couple of weeks in the Valvald West of Canada, the province of Alberta. He was near Calgary and last then he went near Edmonton, way up the north places. Very too, too cold for me. Uh, but he managed to endure. And uh, last Sunday, uh, he was at Grace, like a Grace, I like saying that, Grace Lutheran Church in Camrose, Alberta. And he talked about Purim. He starts by telling the story of Purim, not as good as I do, but what can he expect? So he tells the story of Purim and then provides some special reflections, and you don't want to miss that. Now, if you want to hear me tell the story instead of Alan, you can check out the link that I think Alan's going to put into the description, and you could see the special interview that his son did with me some time ago. And so you can compare who does the story better. I'm sure it's, I'm sure I know who it, you're going to say it is. But anyway, I don't want to take up too much time away from from Alan's presenting this talk on Purim as he speaks about the irony of this holiday. So let's see, I think I'm supposed to press a button. This button? Nope, that button. How many of you uh, have ever heard of the biblical festival Purim? A minority. It's in the Bible. It's in the book of Esther, one of the most delightful, though fairly difficult, not difficult to understand. It's actually one of the most simplest to understand. In many ways, it almost reads like a children's story, uh, but a very powerful one. The book of Esther, only 10 chapters, easy to read in one, in one sitting. And so uh, 
Purim, which is what the festival's called, as, as instituted by the characters in the book of Esther, occurs this year tomorrow evening. Biblical holidays slash Jewish holidays all begin the evening before, the, and that goes back to Genesis chapter 1, and that's how the days are counted. There was evening, there was morning. So the Jewish day begins when the sun goes down. And so all over the world, Purim will be celebrated. More religious Jews will attend a service. Many people will, will celebrate it the weekend before, the weekend after. It's called a minor festival or minor feast because it's not one of the ones found in the books of Moses. Uh, Passover and Pentecost and the others that are found there, uh, all listed in Leviticus chapter 23. This one comes much later, and so it, it isn't treated like a Sabbath day in the way that the uh, major festivals are. But it's a very important, uh, it's a very important celebration, and actually the most, um, the most joyous celebratory celebration of all the Jewish holidays. Um, almost said put together, but it is, it, I'll, I'll, I'll explain some of the ways that it's celebrated in a little while. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over the story, um, and in the midst of that I'm going to read a, a section from the book of Esther, continue on in telling the story, then we're going to look at some of the customs that have arisen from this holiday, and then look at a couple of the lessons that we can derive from it. So the, first of all, the historical context of the story is, as you know, at some point in the history of the people of Israel, the northern kingdom called Israel or Ephraim uh, is conquered by the Assyrians, not the Syrians, but the Assyrians, and they're scattered. That was the Assyrian method of conquering a people. But a hundred years later, the Babylonians are the new kid on the block. They take over that part of the world, including the land of Israel. There's now just the, the southern, southern kingdom of Judah, and their method of conquering is to exile people, and they take most of the people from the land of Judah into exile, into Babylon. God promised through the prophet Jeremiah that that exile would last 70 years, and so now there's another empire uh, in charge, and it's the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire had a more or less multicultural policy of how they ruled their various peoples under their vast domain. And under King Cyrus, just as was prophesied through the prophet Isaiah, he gave permission for those Jewish people who wanted to return back to their homeland to go rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem and reestablish themselves there. And so this story takes place during the Persian Empire in the capital of Persia called Susa or Shushan in Hebrew. The king at that time was, uh, has, I have trouble saying, I have a harder time with the so-called English, Asherah. Uh, some Bibles say that, some Bibles say Xerxes. Um, in, uh, in Hebrew we say Asherah. It's been a long two weeks. Achishveris. Um, and so he's having a party, and a uh, big party lasted months. We think some, you, know, you think you know some party animals. Well, that's nothing compared to these guys. And at some point, he calls for his, his queen, Queen Vashti, to come out and show her, show her beauty before all the people. And she did something that likely was unheard of, except if she did it, it couldn't have been unheard of because she did it. I should have been a philosophy teacher. 
And she said no, which is a huge scandal. And so the wise men all got together and trying to figure out what to do. And they said, you know what, if we let her get away with this, all the other wives are going to start saying no to their husbands. And we can't let that happen. Hey, guys, don't get any ideas now. But so she... Um, She's deposed as queen, and after a while, so we've got to find another queen. And so how do, how, do they went about, how do they go about finding a replacement for Vashti? Obviously, they decide to have some sort of beauty contest-like thing, and all the beautiful maidens of, of, of Shushan were going to come before the king to see who he's going to choose as his, um, as his new queen. Now, there was a Jewish man by the name of Mordecai, and uh, uh, he had the idea that his cousin, who he was taking care of, her Hebrew name was Hadassah, her Persian name was Esther, he had the idea that she should put herself forward as a candidate to be queen, which she did. And as we say in Bible language, lo and behold, she was chosen and she became the replacement for Vashti. Well, around that time, Mordecai is hanging around the capital city and he hears a couple of people talking and they're devising a plot to kill the king. And uh, it becomes known um, to the king and they get, they get the bad guys and Mordecai saves the day. It's a very important part of the story because it comes back later on. Well, another thing that happens around that time is Haman... Uh, is chosen, a Persian man, Haman is chosen to be second in command. And it's decreed that wherever Haman goes, everyone's to bow down to him. Well, Mordecai won't. The reason why Mordecai won't is Haman is descended from the Amalekites. The Amalekites were, the, were a group of people that during the time of the, of the wandering through the wilderness under Moses, they're getting towards the promised land, they stood in the way. They wouldn't allow the people of Israel to pass by, even though they said we're not going to do any harm or take anything, but no. And so God commanded that they should be cursed. And so there's no way that Haman is going to bow down to this despicable uh, Amalekite man by the name of Haman. And I'm, I'm going to tell you one of the customs that is done with regard to this story now, um, and that is when the story is read in the synagogue, um, the custom is, or wherever it's read, community centers and elsewhere, um, the custom is whenever his name is said, we bang our feet, we boo, we hit pots and pans, we, we, we use these noisemakers called gragers in order to blot his name out every time. Um, yes, it's fun. Yes, you can have fun when you're reading the Bible. Um, and uh, anyway, so as I continue to tell the story, if you have other names you want to put in instead of Haman, that's up to you in your minds. That'd be, probably should keep it to yourself for now. Talk about it over lunch. So uh, Mordecai won't uh, bow down, and this infuriates Haman. He is so upset at this one man's refusal to bow down that he doesn't only want to destroy Haman, he wants to destroy all of Haman's people, people of Israel, the Jewish people. Have you ever met any leaders that are kind of insecure in their position? Yeah, some of them are really high up in our countries and so on, and sometimes they're leading churches. Did I say that? But anyway, 
I know it's like to feel insecure. Um, and so he goes to the king and he offers to fund this plan. And what they do is the way they chose the date for this day of Jewish annihilation was they threw some sort of lots. And the word, one of these lots, singular is pur, plural is purim or Purim, that's where we get the name of the festival from, from the, the lots that were thrown to choose the date. Um, and so Mordecai hears about this and begins to weep and wail in public and um, word finally gets to Esther uh, that this horrible thing is happening and he's urging her to... Um, urging her to do something about it. And so this is where I'm going to read Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. It's, it, the, the immediate background is Mordecai gets word to Esther and messages passed back to Mordecai that she is too afraid to go to the king because whoever you are, even his wife, you need to be invited. If you're not invited and you come to the king's court, if he doesn't hold out his scepter to you, you're going to be executed, even the queen. And so she, I'd be afraid to go. She was afraid to go, and that's what she tells Mordecai. And so Esther 4, starting at verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and, my young I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Then Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. One of the things I want to point out here, and we're going to come back to this, is one of the unique things of the book of Esther is there's no mention of God anywhere in the book. No the word for God, the word that is sometimes translated as Jehovah or Yahweh, in your Bibles it usually says Lord, no direct reference to God at all. No he or him referring to God. Did I say no mention at all? There's also no mention of prayer. So even here where we would expect prayer and fasting, it just says fasting. We don't know why it was written this way, but it is a reminder, especially in this book, because actually when you read the book of Esther, God is everywhere. His fingerprints are everywhere. His presence is everywhere, even though he's not being mentioned explicitly. And it's sometimes when God seems to be the most absent is when he's actually the most present. And we need to remember that. And so what, here Esther is confronted with this idea that she's not grappling with yet, here she is probably in the safest place in the whole empire of Persia. And here her people are in danger, but you'd think that as queen, she would be safe. And Mordecai's saying, no, my dear. You're going to be found out. You're going to perish just like everybody else. And maybe you are in your position 
for such a time as this. And so she agrees and asks that, everybody, that all the people fast on her behalf. And so she comes up with a plan, lots of plans in this, in this book, and she goes, so what, she, well, first of all, she goes to the king's court, and lo and behold, he holds out the scepter, she's okay, what do you want? And he says, up to half my kingdom, I will give it to you. I, I don't think he was being totally sincere. I think it was an expression, I think. Anyway, so she says, she makes her petition. Would you, you and Haman please come to a banquet? Banquets, a lot of eating in the story. Come to a banquet that I'm preparing. Okay, Haman is so happy that, um, that, uh, he gets invited, especially him and the king, that's it, that's perfect for a guy like Haman. And uh, he goes to the banquet, and some, at some point the king asks her, what do you want, Queen Esther? And she said, here's what I want, O king. Come to a banquet tomorrow. I don't know why she came up with this kind of plan, but that's how the story goes. And so another banquet for the next day. And Haman is so delighted. Like he is so excited that he is the guy that gets picked by the, by the queen to go to this, nobody else but the king and him. And who does he see on the way home but Haman? And it just destroys him. Like here is the most second powerful man in the, in the kingdom, in the empire, picked by the queen to go with the king to this banquet, but it's not good enough because there's this one man that won't honor him. And so he is a mess. He goes home and his wife sees him all depressed. And she says, hey, you're Haman. You are the, almost the top dog in the land. I got an idea for you. Why don't you make this huge gallows and hang a Mordecai on it? Good idea. So he's going to go to the king and get permission to make this, to, to pitch this idea. And he's waiting in the outer court. Well, meanwhile, the king is sleeping. It's one part of the book I don't understand. Like, I don't know what time it is, but anyway, he can't sleep. He wants to sleep. And so he asks his servants to bring him his annals to be read. Wouldn't you love somebody to come and read you your annals? <laughs> On the other hand, maybe it's like a sleeping pill. So anyway, they come in, they read his annals to him, and in the annals is the story of how Mordecai saved the day on his behalf some time before. And he says, has anything ever been done for Mordecai to honor him for, for what he did? And they say, no, your highness, nothing. He says, what shall we do? Who's in the outer court? Um, Haman, your highness. Oh, bring him in. So Haman comes in and the king says to him, Haman, tell me, what should be done for the man that the, the man for whom the king wants to honor. And Haman's thinking, who must he want to honor but me? And Haman says, here's my suggestion, king. Get your finest robe and, your, and, your, and a gold ring and your finest horse and put this man on the horse and have him march through the town proclaiming, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. And the king says, great idea, Haman. Go do, you go do it for Mordecai. <laughs> and so off he goes, 
and he has to do this for Mordecai. Here's what the, I don't know how he did it, but you know, here's what's to be done for the man the king wants to honor. Maybe he put on a better show than that, I don't know. Well, he is a, if he wasn't a mess before, he's a mess now, and he goes home, he tells his wife what just happened. And his wife says to him, remember, she's the one that had the gallows idea. And so she has, she says, you know what, honey? Uh, this is my paraphrase. You know what, honey? If this Mordecai is from the Jews, you're dead meat. That's, that's, that's the Alan Gilman paraphrase. Like, why didn't she think of that before? Like, did she really not know? Somehow, all of a sudden, she's like this insightful prophetess person and goes, you know, X equals Y is whatever, and it goes, you know, you don't really know what you're up against. You are in big trouble. Well, before he had anything to say about it, the servants of the king come to take him to banquet number two. And so there he is at banquet number two, and the king asks again the whole up to half my kingdom kind of thing, and she said, and she starts to say, oh, my king, we're in trouble, we're in distress, help me, help me, and who, like, who, who has you and your people in trouble? That despicable Haman. Your Highness. And the king is livid and he has to go out of the room and then Haman throws himself at Esther for mercy. The king comes back in. It doesn't look nice. He thinks uh, Haman's going after his wife now and he's like, what are we going to do with this Haman? And his servants come up with, why not hang him on the gallows? And that's what happens to Haman. Well, there's still a problem. There's still a problem because... The way the Persians did laws is they could never be revoked. I don't know why they had their, that policy, but they had that policy. So the king could not take back the law. The only thing he could do was make another law. And so he had Mordecai and Esther write up a new law that gave the Jews permission to fight back on that, their appointed day of destruction. Well, many of the Persian people were so freaked out by that, many of them became Jews. That's what it says in the text, became Jews because the fear of the Jews fell on them. And so the day that was planned to be a day of great destruction became a day of great victory. And so following that, Mordecai and Esther made a decree that this should always be a day of great celebration and rejoicing, giving uh, gifts of food to the poor and so on. And that's what's been going on ever since. And so, as I mentioned, uh, to commemorate the holiday, we read the story. Um, we have carnivals with, with co uh, we, people get dressed up in costumes. Um, there are special plays that are done, often to retell the story. And we eat a special, uh, um, it's like a special dessert. Uh, it's a triangular folded pastry, usually filled with either poppy seeds or dates. But thankfully, my wife also makes a chocolate version, and they're called Hamantaschen, named after Haman. So as I said, it, is, it, it really is the most wild celebratory holiday in the Jewish calendar. And I was wondering, is it appropriate to talk about such a fun and sometimes even wild kind of celebration during this time of Lent here in a church? And absolutely it's appropriate. Why? Because we would not have this celebration. We would not have this great fun holiday 
if Esther had not come to accepting her, her place, her calling, and accept that if she goes and tries to do what she believed God was calling her to do it, she might die. There would have been no rescue, no salvation, no celebration if Esther hadn't picked up her cross, so to speak, and followed the Lord into this very dangerous place where she herself might have been killed. She reckoned with her death in order to bring life. And that's the message of the gospel. At some point, I shared this with my students in class this past week. We often think of picking up our cross and following Jesus as the difficult life that we live. Oh, we have a cross to bear, but it's worth it. Isn't that an attractive message? <laughs> but that's not what carrying a cross means. What carrying a cross actually means is being willing to do whatever God is calling us to do, even if it kills us. It's going against the grain in a broken world, being willing to take the difficulties, the sufferings, the hardships in order to fulfill the will of God in our lives. That's what Jesus did, and that's what he's calling us to live, to do. And yet, we've just lived, I'm not speaking for this congregation, I, I've, some of you have just met, there's maybe the odd person I've met some years ago here in this room, but um, the past several years, believer and non-believer alike, it's all been about preservation. And Jesus said that if we're not willing to lose our, if we, if we keep our lives, we will lose it. That's a promise, that's a guarantee. Preservation is a road to hell. Being willing to face life head on and being willing to die for what God wants us to do, not just doing risky things for their own sake, but following God and being willing to face death, that's life. That's also a guarantee. This is how it works and there's no way to come up with, you can't make life work any other way. I don't like pain. I love comfort. I really do. I love air conditioning in the summer and heat in the winter. But we are called to lay down our lives and that's the only way we're ever gonna find life. I've often wondered why, I've been a believer for um, about 46 years, um, grew up in a Jewish community in Montreal. The air I breathed was Jewish. Um, and a lot of issues among my people. One of the big ones is we, we as a people don't believe in our own Messiah. I do believe that's going to change one day, hopefully soon. But one of the things we have as part of who we are as a people is we have an integrative uh, experience of, of sorrow and joy. They say no people group on the planet has suffered as much as my people, the Jewish people. And yet, boy, do we know how to celebrate. 
You know, my experience in the church, again, can't speak for you, but my experience in the church all these years, and I've been in so many different churches from so many different kind of backgrounds, that, yeah, we could do sadness, and we could do happy, but they're never integrated. And often when, when a lot of Christians kind of like want to break out of a somber form of Christianity, it's kind of, it, it, it doesn't bring the sorrow with it does it in a separate silo whatsoever and often having nothing to do with our faith. Like our happy occasions, I don't know about you. you know, churches that do Palm Sunday. I don't mean to make fun, but Hosanna, Hosanna. That's not what they did. The Messiah had come. They were going wild. And then I know there's churches, they go wild all the time. And many of those deny suffering. They don't know how to put the two together. When actually, truly following God is full of irony. God leads us in a way with great promise and then smack, we're smacked down, it's horrible and awful, and then God comes to our rescue, turning things around. The story of Esther is a story of the turning of the tables, and it is delightful, it's hilarious, and it's full of danger and fear and destruction together. But isn't that life? Isn't that really the way life is? Isn't it a mushy thing altogether? You know, it says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And, and yeah, it's true. And some of those are kind of in silos. But it, you know, you might go from a celebrating someone's birth and the next thing you know, you're going to a funeral. Life is like that. It's full of all these things. And I wonder if, if something's disintegrated in our minds and hearts where we're not able to fully embrace it. And our lack of being able to fully embrace both the sorrow and the joy is the only way to experience both those things fully. And at the base of all this is I wonder if we've gotten to the place where we've really and truly given our lives wholly both holy with a W and holy with an H, to the Lord, where we have given up our life, the claim, we give up the claim on our own lives. Oh God, do whatever you want with me. Whatever it costs, and that's the only way to life, and that's only the only way to true celebration. We should be ecstatic, the most ecstatic people on the planet. Suffering for the Lord, seeing his victory all at the same time. That's what we see here. That's what we see in the story of Jesus. That's what we see all through the Bible. And perhaps whoever we are, wherever we are in life, some might be sitting here going, well, that sounds good, but I'm done. I've lived my life. Well, just remember, we serve the God of Moses and Abraham who did a lot of starting very, very late in life. You just never know what is he calling us to at such a time as this. We're living in a day in this country that many of us never thought we'd ever see. The challenges that we're facing today for us are unique. They might be unique for the history of the world. And God has chosen us to be living at this time, to live in the places where we are, what is he calling to do us to do unless we're willing to say 
here am I, Lord, whatever you want, send me, do with, we, do with us whatever you want. We are never going to know the joy that's part of our inheritance in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for my precious and brothers and sisters here. The vast majority of just meeting today, each one with a story, stories of joys and sorrows. Would you speak into, into the lives of, of the people here, both personally and corporately as part of this congregation? And may you fulfill all the good things that you want in this community. Lord, may each heart say yes to you. Thank you that you could be trusted even for the most difficult things of life. Show us, Lord, where we are holding back out of fear and haven't fully given ourselves to you completely. That, and may we do that, that we might know your fullness of joy and fulfill your good pleasure in our hearts and lives. We thank you. Well, I was... Uh double-checking what I had said last Sunday as getting ready to do this podcast and it was challenging me. So I hope it was challenging you. What, what did you think about it? Especially this idea of how uh, irony is uh, called an essential part of life and of scripture and how this turning of the tables is, is something that when we see how God's actually working in life, the life that he's calling us to live, it it enables us to not only live life to its full, but frees us to to celebrate life in the way that we should, like we do at Purim time. Uh, so please let me know. Put your comments in the comments section. Don't forget to subscribe, like, review, and share. Get the word out as, as much as you can. I uh, really appreciate that. And if you have any questions for me directly, you could send them to comments at thinkingbiblically.org. We'll have a couple of special guests coming up. I mentioned other times I often don't like saying that. Hopefully it all works out because I, I don't have them recorded yet, but we're going to be looking at um, uh, on some interesting topics coming up in the next little while. I have some other ideas. It's good to be back home after being away for two weeks. It's great. Uh, it was great to meet many of you that might be watching this now, people I met for the first time, had a wonderful time away, but it's good to be back home with my family. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. Music